when we know why people get abortions. And one of the principal reasons why they get abortions is because of financial insecurity. That's something that public policy can do something about, along with, for example, private philanthropy. So a holistic pro-life movement knows that it cannot rest its argument solely by talking about the baby because of the powerful interests of the mother and legitimate interests of the mother. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Thank you so much for bearing with me as I was giving you summaries from my new book for the last 10 weeks. When I look at the political sphere at the moment, it's very easy to be pessimistic. In the United States, there is a very real chance that Donald Trump or one of his acolytes or imitators may get back into power in 2024. And we have seen in the last weeks and months once again just how serious a threat to democracy that would represent. More broadly, we see around the democratic world extremists on the left, but perhaps especially on the right, continuing to have very significant popular appeal. And so it is far too early to stop ringing the alarm bell about the state of our democratic systems. But to make our democracies work and to be able to sustain the great experiment of the early 21st century, the attempt to build these deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracies, we also need to be able to see the things that are working relatively well in our societies, especially when you switch off cable news, when you don't look at electoral politics. We also have to have a optimistic vision of the kind of society that we can build, that most citizens would actually like to live in. And I think when you compare our societies today to what they looked like 100 or 50 or even 25 years ago, when you see the ways in which societies have in fact become more tolerant, have come to have conceptions of who is a true member of them that are much more inclusive, when you look at the ways in which people decide every day to embark on a common life across traditional boundaries of race and religion and ethnicity, in those societies, I do think that there is some real reason for midterm and long-term optimism. The ideal of a society which lives up to two ideals at the same time is not yet dead. The ideal of a society in which we collectively rule ourselves, even though we are very different in our beliefs and ideologies and origins, and the ideal of a society in which each of us is able to be true to the commitments we have, to the groups to which we belong, uh, and also to chart our own path through life independently of what the majority might tell us, independently of what our own families and neighbors might tell us, is not yet that. 
if we want the 21st century to be more peaceful, more thriving, more tolerant, if we want our societies to be places where most of us would want to live, we need to double down on our attempt to guard those values, to make the great experiment of building and sustaining these diverse liberal democracies succeed. I know I've been talking for a long time about the book on this podcast, but nevertheless, a few summaries do not do justice to a written book. So if you enjoyed some of these themes, I would be very, very grateful if you read or perhaps listen to on Audible my new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. And if you did read it, if you did buy it, if you tell your friends about it as well. And from now on, we're going to resume our normal programming, which is to say that some weeks you will hear summaries of uh, the great articles we're publishing on persuasion by the authors. In some weeks, I'm going to give you my view on some important development or event happening. My guest today is David French. David is one of the most important voices in American public discourse. He's a senior editor at Dispatch. He writes for The Atlantic. He somehow manages to write three big articles every week. I have no idea how he does it. David is very different from me politically and personally. He's an evangelical Christian who has for a long time been a movement conservative. But he also has been one of the most steadfast and courageous opponents of Donald Trump since the very beginning, since 2015. We had two very different strands on the conversation. One about the criminal case against Donald Trump and whether or not it is wise to prosecute Trump. And the other about the moral status of abortion, the reasons why David is a member of a pro-life movement, does favor significant restrictions on the legality of abortion, but also the reasons why he worries very much about the state of the pro-life movement and why he is not, in fact, triumphant in the wake of the recent Supreme Court rulings. One of the things I love about David is that we are able to have debates across a significant set of political and moral differences, which are earnest and open-minded and uh, treat each other with seriousness and respect. I hope that you will approach this conversation about some fraud issues in the same spirit. David French, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back. I, I really appreciate it. So... I've been following January 6th hearings, but I still have the sense that it's actually difficult to put into perspective exactly how complicit Donald Trump was in the assault on the Capitol and how the revelations of the last weeks and months should change our view of Trump, especially yeah. for those of us who have been you know, very concerned about Trump as a threat to our democratic institutions for a long time in any case. So... How has your view of Trump's character or your view of the extent to which he's become complicit in an assault on democracy changed in the last months? 
Yeah. So nothing has changed about my assessment of his character. He's exactly as low as I thought he was. But I have changed some in my assessment of his criminal liability, not his moral culpability, which was very clear from the beginning. I mean, from the beginning of the Stop the Steal effort, for example, culminating in the attack on the Capitol, the moral culpability, the political culpability of Trump was absolutely crystal clear. But of course, our law doesn't just regulate what's immoral or politically dangerous is, of course, not always illegal. And so I've been very focused on trying to draw out these distinctions. I've had this view that Trump's primary legal jeopardy was not related to January 6th. For some time, I've had this view that its primary legal jeopardy is not related to January 6th. As awful as January 6th was, his primary legal jeopardy was in Georgia. And the Georgia grand jury that has been doing its work related to his efforts to turn the election in Georgia. Let's take a step back. Sorry, just what is it that happened in Georgia and why do you think there may be criminal liability for what Trump did then? Yeah. So in Georgia, there was an effort where he reached out to the secretary of state. He intervened with the secretary of state to try to get the secretary of state and quoting him here, he wanted him to find 12,000 votes. Okay. Well, that's sort of bad enough on its own terms, but he went further here. He not only said you have to find 12,000 votes, he not so subtly threatened criminal prosecution in the event that those votes weren't found. And I'm going to quote from Trump's call that was recorded by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's team. And this is Trump. And you're going to find that they, and keep in mind, this is a Trump word salad, but the meaning is pretty clear. And you're going to find that they are, which is totally illegal. It is more illegal for you than it is for them because you know what they did and you're not reporting it. In other words, he's saying it is more illegal for Raffensperger to not find these votes and it was for the alleged illegal votes to be cast. He says, that's a criminal offense and you can't let that happen. That's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyer, that's a big risk. I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have because we won the state. To put this into perspective, imagine small town sheriff is losing an election narrowly and goes to the county commissioner and says, you need to find me the votes I need to win, or, you know, you might find yourself arrested. The sheriff would already be indicted. How much of this depends on mens rea? Morally speaking, this case is open and shut, as you were saying. Morally speaking, it's clear that he is the president of the United States putting significant political pressure and issuing, in a way, personal threats against an election official in order to influence the outcome of the election. That, I think, makes it clear that Trump was attacking the transition of power. It makes it clear that Trump certainly is not fit to have high office in this country. In terms of criminal liability, doesn't a lot depend on whether or not Trump thought that he was speaking truthfully? Let's hypothetically assume that there was, in fact, voter fraud in Georgia, which obviously I don't believe there was, right? Let's assume that 100,000 votes were stolen. And so Trump is saying, hey, I can tell that they stole those votes. If you don't do anything to counteract that, you end up 
being complicit in that. And, you know, there should be legal consequences for that, right? That's something that perhaps there are, in fact, some laws to deal with. I don't know exactly what the nature of it is. So go and at least find the votes that ensure that the outcome of the election is correct. If he believed all of that, would that still be a criminal act? Again, I think morally he would be culpable because he's believing something that's in fact false. But in criminal terms, would he be liable if, if he was speaking out of genuine conviction at that moment? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one I think that allows us to sort of clarify what mens rea typically means. It isn't necessarily crawling into somebody's brain and divining what they truly actually thought in their deepest heart of hearts. It generally is a stand-in for knew or should have known. That's overgeneralization. So if somebody has no reasonable basis for believing what they're saying is true, and yet they're saying, I believed it was true, you can't prosecute me. You know, a prosecutor is going to go to a jury and say, yeah, he's offering that as a defense, but you can disregard that defense because piece of evidence A, B, C, D, E, and F, and G, where everyone around him was telling him he lost, where his own attorney general told him. That's where you got some valuable testimony out of January 6th. The commission was they were laying a careful predicate to show that he was fully informed that he had lost this election. He was fully informed of that. And so this sort of idea that says, well, in spite of the fact that my own counsel, my own attorney general, my own advisors told me I lost, I really, really, truly believed that I won. I mean, you can make that argument, a jury is not required to credit it, is a good way of putting it. So the argument would be something like, let's say that he genuinely did believe it. As I think at some level he did. I mean, for me, part of the core of being an aforetime populist is this idea that you you alone truly represent the people, which actually leads you very easily to the conclusion that if you lose an election, it must be because of a sabotage. It must be because there's something wrong. So I'm minded to believe that Trump, despite all these people telling him the contrary, really did in certain ways believe that he won the election. But your response to that would be, well, but would a reasonable person have believed that in that in that circumstance? And if that's not the case, then he may nevertheless be criminally liable. Right. Or if intent is an element of a crime, for example, what are you doing to prove intent? You're going to prove what was the knowledge that the person had, what kind of knowledge was coming in. You're going to provide proof of all of those inputs. Now, that doesn't mean that the defendant is defenseless. You know, the defendant, if intent is element of a crime, could say, well, in spite of all of these inputs, these reasonable inputs telling me that the election wasn't stolen, that I still believed it was, that's going to be a jury question. And so it's going to be a weighing of evidence. And in ordinary circumstances, if you have evidence of the kind that we have here of the people around Trump telling Trump the truth, that's generally the kind of evidence that a prosecutor is very happy to take to a jury. And so what you're thinking is, can I prove the elements of this crime to a jury with proof that would be proof beyond a reasonable doubt? And the amount of information that Trump had incoming leaves sort of Trump with this kind of notion that he has to persuade the jury that he's just kind of utterly deranged, <laughs> you know, and I'm not going to call it an insanity defense because an insanity defense is a you know highly technical thing, but in an interesting way, it's kind of like a version of it that he just is incapable of knowing better. And when intent is an element, that's a tough position to be in when you're defending 
an element of a crime where, you know, you're putting forward proof of intent. It's a tough place to be for a defendant to basically have to convince the jury that he's just off his rocker, <laughs> you know? especially tough when you're the president of the United States. And when you're somebody like Trump who has an incredible amount of pride in his own intellectual abilities. But, you know, if you want to tie this in Georgia to a specific statute, there is a statute. It's a criminal solicitation statute. It's super straightforward. It says a person commits the offense of criminal solicitation to commit election fraud in the first degree when, with the intent that another person engage in conduct constituting a felony under this article, he or she solicits, requests, commands, importunes, or otherwise attempts to cause the other person to engage in such conduct. So what's the intent element here? The intent element here is I intend that you engage in conduct that would constitute a felony under this article. So what's some of that conduct? Georgia Code Section 212566, and just for listeners' benefits, I don't have all this memorized. I'm actually looking at it. prohibits willfully tampering with any electors list, voter certificate, numbered list of voters, ballot box, voting machine, direct recording electronic equipment, electronic ballot marker, or tabulating machine. So he's trying to get them to tamper with the tabulation. And so there is a straightforward, simple criminal case in Georgia. And there has been for some time. I don't know if it'll happen. It's a big, big, big step for a local DA to prosecute a former president. But that was my longstanding belief of Georgia. On January 6th, I was skeptical of a criminal liability for Trump related to the riot. Okay, so now we're going from the run-up of January 6th and the phone call that Trump placed to Raffensperger and his possible criminal liability under Georgia state law. And we're saying, all right, so that's one kind of question. The second kind of question is, did he commit, I assume, a federal offense on January 6th, 2021? So why were you skeptical of that leading up to the hearings? And why did your mind change about that over the course of the last weeks? Yeah. So whenever you're asking is something criminal, you're always asking, okay, which statutes apply? And so a lot of people raise seditious conspiracy, for example. Seditious conspiracy is now a statute that's been applied and indictments have been handed down against Proud Boys and others for seditious conspiracy. That's a generally tough legal case to make, not because the statute doesn't seem to fit, but because the statute is really overly broad and vague, which means that it's been narrowly construed by courts And it actually hasn't been used very much. It's kind of a tough charge to make and to make stick, ironically enough, because the statute is just too broad. It implicates too much on its face. It implements too much conduct that could be constitutionally protected. What does it say? Let me pull up some of the key language. If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority to of or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law or by force to seize, take, or possess any property contrary to the authority thereof, they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years. Now, the problem here is you have broad constitutional protections to advocate the overthrow of the government. <laughs> the First Amendment has been held to very broadly protect 
people who are going to advocate even the violent overthrow of the government. And so you really have to narrowly construe the statute to make it constitutional. So that's going to mean when you're talking about conspiracy, you're going to have to show some specific kinds of overt acts, for example, and you're going to have to tie it to attempt to destroy by force. And so it's got to be more than even the advocacy for the violent overthrow of the government. There's got to be a real, genuine conspiracy that ultimately results in force. And the problem was, if you're talking about the Proud Boys and others who have these actual seditious conspiracy charges, which are, I believe, appropriate, it was really hard to find, and we still haven't found any specific link to Trump and these Proud Boys. And general statements like stand back and stand by or whatever Trump said in that debate don't count. And so where is the linkage between Trump and the Proud Boys? Just to take an example, because his other efforts, like the Eastman memos, where he's trying to get Mike Pence to take a particular set of steps that Eastman argues is justified by the Constitution and the ambiguities of the Electoral Count Act, that doesn't really match seditious conspiracy, right? And so you've got just a real proof problem there. All right, so so far we're saying there is the statute which criminalizes all kinds of calls for the overthrow of the U.S. government. That seems to be rendered moot by the First Amendment, because otherwise, you know, every communist group in the country and every traditional whatever group in the country is guilty of sedition all of the time, and we end up in a really repressive regime. Clearly, that's not what we want to do. So you're saying that actually the basis for federal indictment would have to be in a different law. Unless, of course, we get some clear evidence that ties him to those, for example, who've already been indicted for seditious conspiracy. We don't have that. Now, here is a different law. This is 18 U.S.C. Section 2383. This is the rebellion or insurrection statute. And it says, whoever incites, incites, okay, this is a key word, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto, shall be fined under this title in prison not more than 10 years or both and she'll be incapable of holding any office under the United States. That's a key provision there. Now, here's the key word, incites. There's been a general consensus amongst a lot of First Amendment attorneys that Trump's speech on January 6th to the crowd might have come close to incitement, but it didn't really cross that line, in part because he tempered some of his statements like fight like hell or you have to be strong, you know, urging that there has to be strength to take back the country with the admonition that people should march peacefully and patriotically. And that that admonition kind of saves the rest of the speech because politicians always say fight for this and fight for that. Now, I had thought, because for incitement to be unlawful, consistent with the First Amendment, what you have to have is intent and imminence. So here's the way it works. There's two cases, one called Brandenburg versus Ohio, that dealt with a prosecution of a Klan leader. And the court throughout the prosecution, even though the Klan leader engaged in a speech promising revengeance if the presidents continue to, quote, suppress the white Caucasian race, 
The court held that speeches, even if they threaten violence or disorder, are protected by the First Amendment unless advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. This in a later case called Hesby in Indiana, they shortened the test to say speech can't be prosecuted for incitement unless it's intended to produce and likely to produce imminent disorder. So you have an intentionality element here and a likelihood element. Now, the likelihood element is met. The disorder wasn't just imminent, it happened. (laughs) It happened. But the intentionality, this is where it gets interesting. Because if you walk through the evidence now, Trump says, December 19th, 2020, big protest, be there, be wild. He then directs his supporters to march on the Capitol. And this is the key point. Thanks to the most recent testimony from Cassie Hutchison, we also now know that he knew that the crowd was armed and also knew that they weren't a threat to him. So he knows they're armed. He knows they're not a threat to him. And then later on, he further inflames the crowd by tweeting that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what was necessary. So if I'm a prosecutor, I'm saying, sure, sure, he said this patriotically and peacefully stuff, but that was sort of ass covering, so to speak. The core of it is he invited the crowd to the Capitol. He invited the crowd to Washington, D.C., and he sent them specifically to the Capitol knowing they were armed. Does that mean that he intended to produce an imminent disorder? I'd feel comfortable taking that to a jury. So what is the nature of the intent that you would have to prove in that case? At that point, does it depend on what he wants Congress to do? If he's saying, look, I just wanted them to make sure that people in the chamber would raise objections to the electoral system in an appropriate way, in the way that Democrats had in 2016 to the election of Donald Trump. Would that nevertheless be criminal because he is trying to use the threat posed by an armed mob to do something, even if the thing that he wants them to do is legal? Yeah, so that would, of course, be his defense. His defense would be Politicians say fight all the time. They say have to be strong all of the time. You know, was it Obama who said punch them back twice as hard? And nobody thought Obama was meaning actually punch people. And so his defense would be, wait a minute, I'm using normal political rhetoric to ask them to engage in constitutionally protected activity. How on earth can you say I intended for this riot to occur? So again, what you're talking about is weight of evidence, not we have 100% proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was incitement. The question is, can you convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt? And so the answer to that would be, no, hold on. You whipped this crowd into a frenzy of lies. You told them to come, promised things would be wild. You knew they were armed. You sent the armed mob to the Capitol. Then when the armed mob was at the Capitol, you told them specifically targeted Mike Pence and inflamed the crowd against Mike Pence. And then the other thing you would do is you'd zoom out and you'd say, and you also have to look at the overall circumstances here. Rudy Giuliani says at the same event, let's have trial by combat. He says at that same event, this has been a year in which they've invaded our freedom of speech, our freedom of religion, our freedom to move, our freedom to live. I'll be darned if they're going to take away our free and fair vote. And we're going to fight to the very end to make sure that doesn't happen. Mo Brooks to the same crowd 
says, our ancestors sacrificed their blood, their sweat, their tears, their fortunes, and sometimes their lives to give us their descendants in America that is the greatest nation in world history. So I have a question for you. Are you willing to do the same? So here's the overall picture. You have an angry crowd being whipped up into a violent frenzy. The president knows they're armed and he sends them straight to the Capitol. Again, the question isn't, does the president have no defenses? The question is, is this a case you take to the jury? And I would say that it is. So I'm not a lawyer. I'm a political scientist. So I want to shift the way we think about this question for a moment and ask, what is the best way for this country to rid itself of the danger that Donald Trump poses and the broader authoritarian populist movement that he represents? And what is our most realistic scenario for getting back to a politics which might be based on very robust disagreement, which might be based on very robust competition, but which involves a minimum of uh, mutual toleration. Now, I have two warring instincts within me on this question, right? On the one hand, if the president of the United States broke the law in a very significant way, then like any other citizen of a country, he should face the consequences for that. And if it is clear, as you argue it is, that he broke the law in Georgia and that he broke federal law, then he should be responsible for that in front of a jury. On the other hand, I really worry about the fact that such a trial is likely to turn him into a hero and a martyr on his political side, consolidating his control over the Republican Party in the primary process that it will be seen by a lot of people as you lose an election, you go stand trial and you might go to jail, providing politicians with a very heavy incentive not to lose the next election, with a heavy, very heavy incentive to undermine the outcome of the next election. And it does make it even harder to imagine any kind of scenario where we manage to depolarize the country. Perhaps it decreases the likelihood of Donald Trump being in office in 2024, which is a threat I take seriously, but it also makes it harder to imagine some kind of outcome to the 2024 election where the country slowly moves towards any kind of form of reconciliation. Now, those are not the considerations that a prosecutor in the state of Georgia should necessarily be guided by, right? They should be guided by their oath of office and their obligation to prosecute people who have committed serious crimes. But sort of as a third-person observer, should we in fact hope for Trump to stand trial? Is there anything that this country will in fact gain from that? Or is it likely to be a trap? And I will say that I made myself unpopular at a time when I wasn't yet quite as unpopular with parts of the left as I might be now by arguing against impeachment of Donald Trump, because I did not think it would succeed. And I didn't think it would help us beat this threat in the best possible way, which is at the ballot box. And I haven't made my mind up about this one, because I think the question is a less political question, it's a more technical question, and I'm less qualified to judge it for that reason. But I have some of the same concerns. So what would your answer to that set of concerns be? So first... <laughs> One of the problems with vice is that it often leaves virtue with very few good options, right? So we just have to acknowledge that right off the top, that Trump has left us without any great options here. 
Yes, in a functional political system, you don't face the problem of having to prosecute a former president and wondering what the effect of that is going to be because the former president hasn't given you any potential reason to do that. And that is by far the way of a situation I wish we were in. That seems absolutely right. So just with a caveat that I can see the various sides of this argument, I weigh in favor of prosecution for a few reasons. One is very fundamental to the notion of the rule of law itself, that there is no position in American government that is too important for the law, that there is no person who is too important for the law. And so, you know, one of the central animating aspects of our Republican form of government is the idea that we're getting away from the idea, the notion of the king as the source of the law or the king being above the law. And so if you're talking about clear criminal conduct by a president, I say prosecute. Now, the key word was clear. I think that you do not want to launch a prosecution of a president under a novel legal theory, for example. You don't want to launch a prosecution of a president unless the case for the prosecution is easy to make in the public square. In other words, it's an A, then B, then C. He's guilty. This is how we treat anybody else. The more novel the legal theory the more difficult I think it is to make the call to go ahead and prosecute because of all the other reasons you talked about. That's one of the reasons why I have talked so much about the Georgia situation, because there, the application of the law is very straightforward, and it's very much supported by legal precedent. It's a very clean case. Whereas a lot of the January 6th stuff, up until sort of this evidence that Cassie Hutchison identified, is not as clean. And it's a tougher case to make, and you're going to have a hard time finding relevant legal precedents, whereas with Georgia, it's just different. And also, the other thing that I think is important about this is that it is difficult to fully describe the extent to which a lot of people in red America, it's not that they support Donald Trump in spite of everything around January 6th, they support Donald Trump and they don't know everything around January 6th. The information gap is immense. I could talk to a bunch of Republican voters right now and use the term the Eastman memos. They would have no idea what I was talking about. None. Fake slates of electors, no idea. You know, the right wing media exists to serve as a defense lawyer for Trump. And so essentially what they do is they constantly amplify the exaggerations or misstatements of the mainstream media. They ignore things that are devastating to Trump often, although Brett Baer, God bless him, really brought some of Cassie Hutchinson's testimony to the fore on Fox. But they tend to ignore negative facts, amplify media mistakes, and put the best spin they possibly can on anything contestable. So that even now in 2022, I have conversations with people on the right, who are longtime Republicans who believe that Donald Trump is a fundamentally honest person. They literally believe that. So I want to shift gears here. We've talked about one completely uncontentious issue, which is whether or not a former president of the United States is guilty of (laughs) crimes and should be prosecuted. So to lighten up the mood, I want to go to another completely uncontentious issue, which is the moral and legal status of abortion. So one of the things that it strikes me about my upbringing as a non-religious person in Europe, and actually about my intellectual circles in the United States for the last 15 or so years, is that the pro-choice case 
is so fundamental an assumption in everyday conversation that I have barely ever or perhaps never heard the case from a pro-life person as to why abortion is a morally fraud issue, why they oppose people getting abortions, and why the law should reflect that fact. Right? What I do sometimes see is, of course, it's a complicated issue. It's a choice for every person to make for themselves, but obviously the law should not get involved. So I would love for you to state for me and for my listeners the case that I've never really heard, which is why should we have deep moral concern about abortion and why may the law get involved in regulating whether or not women are legally entitled to get an abortion? Yeah, it really revolves around a very simple concept that an unborn child is a human life. It is not the mother. It is not the father. It is a separate human being and quite dependent on the mother, of course, and exclusively dependent on the mother prior to viability. But it is a separate human being. And as a separate human being, a just nation does, in fact, protect innocent life from intentional killing. And so the argument that an unborn child is a separate human being isn't just a faith-based argument. From the moment of conception, you're talking about a human being that has separate DNA from the mother, for example. It's separate from the father. It's not a sperm. It's not an egg. It's a separate human entity. It has the same separate DNA from conception until birth and natural death. And so as a separate human being should receive protection from the law. And that status of being dependent on another does not deprive it of worth and value. And so one thing pro-life and pro-choice folks often just completely miss each other on is, you know, women will say, my body, my choice. But the pro-life response, it's not just your body anymore. That a baby, you know, it's not like a tumor or a toenail or another sort of extension of a person's body. It is a separate body, completely dependent, yes, but another human being. And so therefore, as another human being, why does it have no protection from intentional killing? And so that's sort of the fundamental argument of the pro-life movement. It's not that, well, women should have no rights over their bodies. It's just that there is another body involved that science teaches us. It's not just another part of the woman's body. It's a separate body. It's a separate living human being. So here I am torn in two different directions, right? One is that if I look at a fetus that's five or six months old and I look at uh, pictures of that fetus, it's very easy to see that it is in fact a different human being. It looks like a kind of little baby. There are complicated scientific arguments about whether or not it is capable of feeling pain at some particular stage of development, but it is clear that it is capable of doing so well before natural birth. And at that point, the case that Whatever that means for legal regulation of abortion, there's some moral interest here that we need to take seriously and consider becomes very strong. When I look at you know what a fetus looks like at three weeks or at four weeks, I start to be torn in the other direction, which is to say that, yes, I recognize that it is potential human life. I recognize that it has a unique set of 
DNA that will remain the same through birth and natural death. But it does present as a clump of cells. It does not appear to have brain functions. It does not appear to have a capacity of feeling pain. And so at that point, I see that there's some moral value there, some reason for moral concern, but it appears to be a lot less than it would be a few months later. So do you, in your thinking, differentiate between those two stages? How should we think about that development and how does that play into the moral status of abortion or the case for legal restrictions of abortions at those different stages of pregnancy? Yeah. So what you're expressing is kind of where the vast bulk of Americans are. So we talk about the debate about abortion as being very, very polarized, and it is and it's not at the same time. And by that, I mean, we've known for years where most people are on abortion and they share your instincts. And, and by the way, I, I think I know where you're going with this. It's not just the American public. It's also where the settled law is in virtually every continental European country, in Italy, in Germany, in France, in Sweden, and so on. They're going to say after that first trimester, the state is going to dramatically limit access to abortion because, and I don't think there's a real scientific reason you can point to 12 or 14 weeks, for example, because a 12 or 14 week old baby is not viable, right? It is not viable outside the womb. It's more of an instinctive reason. People look at a baby and see the baby become more and more baby-like where it's recognizable as a baby the lot of moral instincts started to lock in. And the interesting thing about this sort of consensus middle position is it's not really rooted in what you would say is sort of, well, what's the scientific basis for it? Uh, I don't know. What's the moral basis for it? Well, it just seems more like a baby then, right? And so a lot of the compromise position is really based a great deal on a particular sort of sentiment about the child more than a scientific understanding of the child. Let me try and give perhaps a little bit of a more principled basis for it. I'm just thinking out loud here, right? But you have a famous sorority uh, paradox, which is an old paradox in philosophy, which comes from the Greek world originally. And it's simply saying, look, clearly, if you have a full head of hair, you have hair. Clearly, if you have no hair, you are bald it's very difficult to draw the line in between. And the paradox is that with each hair that you remove from the head, it is absurd to say that the removal of that particular hair makes you bald. And yet, once you've removed enough hair, it is evident that somebody is bald. And so the only way to draw the line is arbitrary. But the fact that the exact location of a line is arbitrary, is it 12 weeks or 13 weeks or 14 weeks or 15 weeks, doesn't mean that you're not uh, distinguishing between two states that are different for non-arbitrary reasons. And the argument goes, you can look at a heap of cells at two or three weeks, and it's pretty clear that for this potential human life, it is not in any meaningful way like a baby, like a human with thoughts and emotions and feelings and so on. Once you look at a fetus at, let's say, 24 weeks, it is very evidently starting to resemble a human baby in all of those ways. And so, yes, the line you draw in between those two clear poles is arbitrary, and you can have real arguments about where exactly to draw it, but it's not arbitrary that there is a line, and it's not arbitrary that the line is somewhere in between those two states which have clear moral salience. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think that it is not arbitrary to say it looks more like a baby 
because it does, <laughs> right? It does. There is something empirical there that you can see in, in much the same way that people become less supportive of abortion rights from the heartbeat forward when a heartbeat is detectable. So it's not that that's arbitrary because there's the difference between detecting a heartbeat and not detecting a heartbeat. So there's something real there. The heartbeat is very real or the baby looking much more like a recognizable baby. That's all very real. I think the critique of that is, again, it is the change, but what's changing is not the nature of the child, but the a nature of the emotional response the child generates in you is the, what's really shifting there. Because it's just as human before that first heartbeat, or it's just as human before it starts sucking its thumb, it just seems more human. And by reference to empirical things that make it seem more human, but those empirical things, their main effect is not to change the nature of the child, but rather to change the nature of the human response to the child. So the pro-life position says, the life of the child is a value independent of the emotional worth we put on it. So therefore, we can't judge the life of the child by how people feel about the kid. But I recognize, I recognize that the way people feel is directly relevant to exactly their position on the issue and that those feelings are dictating a kind of consensus about abortion rights that is different from where I, as a pro-life person, would want abortion rights to be located, but also quite different from where somebody who is very pro-Roe would want to see abortion rights located. So let's investigate for a moment this question about when the fetus is human, because in some biological sense, it seems obvious to me that two or three weeks in, the fetus is in fact human. It is a human product. It has DNA. It can grow to be a full adult human. And so in all of those ways, biologically speaking, it is human. But I guess the question is, is it human in the relevant ways which normally give us moral consideration towards humans? Now, I think some of the bad arguments for why we shouldn't have moral concern for a fetus at six or seven months are bad precisely by analogy to that question. Because you might say, well, they can't fend for themselves. Well, sure, but nor can a lot of adult humans who we nevertheless want to treat with consideration, right? They're not capable of rationality. All right, sure, again, if you make that the criterion for how we treat human beings, then you're going to have to treat a number of mentally disabled people in extremely cruel ways. So that seems wrong for deep, important reasons. So there seems to be a background set of assumption that we want to treat human lives with consideration if they are capable of having feelings, of feeling pain, of having a set of interests, and so on and so forth. And for this is a very complicated and short question, it doesn't seem to me to be obviously wrong to say that in those relevant senses, a fetus at three or four weeks is not human in the way that a fetus becomes human at five or six months. I absolutely understand what you're saying. And I think that the pro-life position has always been, now let me set aside a group that call themselves abolitionists who are different from this. They're an extreme group that is dividing the pro-life movement right now. So the pro-life movement would say, we completely understand that argument 
In the democratic process, the people should have the ability to say, no, we're going to vote to protect unborn life in spite of that argument. But here's the difference that the pro-life movement has always drawn. And that is, it's not that it sees the unborn child as less valuable than any other child. There's a mens rea to circle back to our earlier conversation. When it comes to a woman, and one of the reasons why pro-life movement has historically been very adamantly opposed to prosecuting women for abortions, is that there's an understanding that women who seek abortions do not have sort of the mens rea as a general review that says, what I'm doing right now by getting an abortion is the same thing as it would be if I was killing a 14-month-old, right? And so there is an understanding of the large gulf that exists in the state of mind regarding an unborn child at different stages of development. And so there's long been an accommodation in the pro-life movement for that different state of mind, which is why it's always sort of wrong if people say to me as a pro-lifer, well, if you believe abortion is murder, then you should want to prosecute women. Like, whoa, hold on. Murder is a very loaded term that implies a particular mens rea, a particular state of mind that quite frankly, the vast, 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 vast majority of people who are seeking abortions just don't have. So therefore it's different. And so I do think that that's where you've seen the pro-life movement say, okay, totally understand where you're coming from on this argument. But our response to that is that's why we treat abortion somewhat differently under the law than you treat, say, infanticide. But now I think we're shifting to a second question, which I wanted to get to as well, right? Because first of all, I just wanted to get out the actual moral set of debates about the status of abortion, right? Then there's a second set of questions, which is, well, what kind of legal treatment of abortion does all of that justify? So now let's for the sake of argument, grant that we're at a point at which there is a human life which has significant interests of its own, whose importance we recognize at some level. Perhaps some listeners will think that that's the case at five or six months. Some listeners will think that's the case at six weeks. Some listeners might think that it's not the case at all. But let's grant it for the moment, right? What then follows from that legally? Because now you seem to have a clash of two sets of interests. You have the interest of a woman to have control over her own body, to lead a self-determined life, and you have the interest of the fetus, which is dependent on her for its survival. So it appears that you have two very significant interests clashing with each other. The law deals with clashing interests all of the time, but this seems to be a particularly dark clashing interest, which I'm not sure that there is lots of analogies in other areas of the law. So what does that in your mind imply for how we can recognize both of those legitimate interests and try to mediate this really strong clash of legitimate interests? Yeah, this is an example when you have this clash of competing interests. And this clash of competing interests is historic, by the way. This is not an argument that just started with Roe in 1973. I mean, America has had abortion laws for a very, very long time that were decided through the democratic process. And I think that the procedural answer to that is that those competing interests should be resolved through the democratic process. And the injury of Roe versus Wade 
was that it removed those interests from the democratic process. So number one, I think it belongs to the democratic process. Number two, then it becomes incumbent upon pro-life citizens to convince the public, I think, of a couple of things. One is this, the unborn child in a mother's womb is a life of incalculable worth. And the woman who is carrying the child is a life of incalculable worth. And that rather than pitting the interest of child and mom against each other, what healthy public policy should do is harmonize them as much as humanly possible. Now, public policy is not going to be able to solve everything. Of course it's not. But a situation where when we know why people get abortions, and one of the principal reasons why they get abortions is because of financial insecurity, for example. That's something that public policy can do something about, along with, for example, private philanthropy. So a holistic pro-life movement knows that it cannot rest its argument solely by talking about the baby because of the powerful interests of the mother and legitimate interests of the mother. And so that's why a holistic pro-life movement is not one that's just simply running around trying to find out ever more creative ways of punishing people who either provide or aid in the bed in providing abortions or ever more creative ways to limit travel out of the state or whatever, ever more creative ways to be punitive. It needs to be pouring energy into creative ways to be supportive. And that's one of the reasons why I'm worried about the state of the right and the quote pro-life right right now, because I think it's very focused on one piece of that puzzle and not nearly as focused on the other. So I want to get back to the criticisms uh, you have of a current state of a pro-life movement. I still want to push you one step further on how to manage this trade-off between the two different interests that you're talking about. You know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that a set of legislative compromises that European nations have managed to make over time is probably a better solution to this than what we've ended up with in the United States, which is a sort of opposition of two pretty fundamentalist sets of positions. And because of the way it's been politicized in the last decades in the United States, there's little hope of us coming to sensible legislative compromises, which involve actual hearing each other out in the way that many European nations have over the last decades. And so, you know, you can simultaneously think that Roe was in some ways a political and strategic mistake because it made it impossible to settle this issue in a lasting way that everybody in society can somewhat live with and be quite pessimistic about our ability to follow the European path of compromise sort of 50 years after the fact. But whatever the right locus for this decision is, whether it is judicial or whether it is parliamentary, and I'm sympathetic to the idea that parliaments are under good circumstances, the right places to come to those decisions the ultimate trade-off remains the same, right? And so I guess I want to get back for one moment to a substantive question rather than procedural question, right? Like how in terms of public policy, whoever it is that designs the public policy, whether that's a parliament, whether that's a set of judges, do you balance those sets of interests? Yeah. So, you know, for example, one of the examples where I think you're just going to have overwhelming consensus within the pro-life movement, it begin with some exceptions in the category of these abolitionists is that life of the mother, for example, 
that a mother is not required to die to give birth to a baby. So life of a mother, another where you're going to have a lot of consensus is physical health of the mother. Not necessarily, for example, emotional, so in other words, I'm going to get an abortion because of anxiety or depression, but physical health, risk of death, where you start to see a little bit more willing. Also, there's also a lot of conflicting thoughts in the pro-life movement about abortion in the cases of rape and incest. So with rape and incest, what you have is a situation where the person who is pregnant did not voluntarily engage in sexual activity, which is known to be potentially reproductive. In other words, you're talking about involuntary sexual activity. And while a lot of pro-life people will say, look, as a moral matter, the unborn child is innocent of the crime of the father, they're going to have difficulty using the power of the state to coerce somebody to bear a child conceived in rape or incest. So this is an area where in the pro-life movement, you'll have people who'll say, well, Morally, perhaps the mom should carry the baby, but as a matter of legal coercion, no. But again, those are divisions in the pro-life movement. So the pro-life movement as a whole, I would say, runs the gamut from the abolitionist wing to those who would support bans on abortion, except in instances where the life and physical health of the mother were implicated or cases of rape and incest. That's where generally you're grouping those people would be, that would be pro-life. And that's a third of America. It's a majority in some states, but it's a a third or so, maybe a little less, a little uh, more, depending on your poll. And that's the community I've been a part of for, gosh, my entire life. And that's sort of the pro-life movement writ large. I'm definitely not one of these abolitionists who would prosecute women and have no exceptions for life and physical health of the mother, you know. And so I think that that's where the sort of the pro-life movement is as a general rule. And it's about a third of America. Now, the interesting thing is there's a recent Harvard-Harris poll that said about 72% of Americans want to ban abortion by 15 weeks. Some earlier, some a little later, but by by 15 weeks, you're getting to 72% of Americans. And so that means that the democratic position, which is a 15-week abortion ban is unacceptable, is an even more of a minority position than the relatively doctrinaire pro-life position. So this is what our abortion politics come down to all of the time, is one minority position has held one party and another minority position has held the other party. And then there's this bigger consensus position that is held by neither party. So perhaps let's close this conversation out by you explaining why you weren't elated by the Supreme Court overturning Roe. So as you just said, you have been a member of a pro-life movement for a very long time. You do worry seriously about the moral wrong done by abortions in this country every day. So explain to us why the pro-life movement shouldn't be celebrating right now and what it's doing wrong and perhaps what the right settlement for the United States in your view on this issue would be. Yeah, the way I've put it is I'm grateful that it's overturned and I have real disquiet in my spirit about the nation in which it's being overturned, (laughs) the state of the nation and the state of the pro-life right more generally. So I think a great constitutional wrong has been righted by Dobbs reversing Rowan Casey. That I am absolutely grateful for. What comes next? It's sort of the what now part of this that I'm worried about. And I'm worried about it on a number of fronts. One is 
it's happening in an environment where for the first time in 40 years in the United States of America, the culture of life is under measurable decay. So if you go back to 8081, that was the peak of the abortion rate in the US. It went down through every presidency from Reagan through Obama, pro-life, pro-choice, didn't matter. The abortion rate went down, 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 down. Part of that was increased access to contraception. Part of that was a lot more people decided to have babies even when they were unplanned pregnancies. So the percentage of unplanned pregnancies that were aborted went down pretty considerably. So those things are happening. And then 2017, it all changes. In 2017 to 2020, the abortion rate goes up. The first presidency since Jimmy Carter, the Trump presidency, we saw the abortion rate go up. So if my primary concern is that abortions end, which is a concern that I held above the law, like banning abortion does not end abortion. But my primary concern is ending abortion. The last four years are deeply disquieting because they're the first time in 40 years that these trends reversed. So that's number one reason for disquiet. Number two, the decision is coming down at a time when much of the right is really given over to the way I put it in a panel at Aspen was performative, punitive legislation. And so legislatures are trying to outdo themselves in each other in the way in which they are creatively punitive. You know, so the bounty hunting laws that we've seen passed in Oklahoma and Texas, and I believe Idaho as well, moving outside of the abortion world, the way in which a lot of red state legislatures are sort of trampling on First Amendment rights to try to stamp out wokeness. It's really landing in a position where the right seems to be so focused on punitive action rather than supportive legislation. And that really worries me because I think the more you focus and you circle the wagons around a punitive approach, A, the more you're going to lose the rest of the public. And B, we've tried that before. That was the state of the law before Roe. And abortion rates were higher than, higher than, than they are now. And so I'm very concerned that there's been a cultural shift back towards abortion that occurred during the Trump presidency, and that the right itself is not ready to be properly, holistically pro-life. David French, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. <laughs>